Politics Uncensored with Ali Milani on Fubar Radio. Hello, everybody. This is Ali Milani on Politics Uncensored. I have made my way back from Liverpool. Uh, I took the night train back from Liverpool to London, straight to the studios at Fubar Radio to give you our recap, our debrief um, on Labour Party conference in Liverpool this week and all the events uh, coming out uh, of conference. I'm going to do a disclaimer at the top of the show. I've had like three hours sleep. Okay, so if I mispronounce stuff, if I get lost, don't at me. I don't want to hear it. Give me a break. But we have a huge show for you. Um, a massive show, actually, and um, some really, really interesting guests. Uh, we're going to focus on the fallout from conference. Um, the party conference season in general uh, is a really good opportunity for the parties, whether that's the Conservatives, Lib Dems or Labour, to present the country with the vision of, of what either continuing government looks like for the Conservatives uh, or what a Labour Britain would look like. And that's what conferences tend to be. And so you'll see uh, the leader of the oppositions uh, and the Prime Minister get up on stage and give their vision of what, of what the future looks like. This party season is particularly important and particularly potent because it's the last one before a general election. Uh, and I know there's some umming and ahhing about that, but we're fairly confident it's the last one and we're going to get a general election in May 2024. And so it was really the last opportunity that Sekir Starmer, Rishi Sunak uh, and Ed Davey have had to present their vision for, for the country. And we're going to focus on, on, on Labour because that's where I've been. Uh, but we also <clears throat> we discussed the Conservative Party conference on last week's show. And so we're going to talk about all the things that's come out of party conference, uh, some of the things going on around the world with some uh, amazing guests. So joining us uh, a little bit later, we have Alex Niner, senior housing researcher at the New Economics Foundation. Major, major news breaking from Sakir Starmer's speech around housing. So he's going to talk us through that. Uh, joining us uh, later on in the show, in one of his first interviews since glitter bombing Sakir Starmer at the beginning of his speech, uh, you will hear from Yaz Ashmawi, uh, who was the individual who was arrested following uh, his protest at the beginning of Sakir Starmer's speech where he glitter bombed him. Uh, and I believe now Labour Party are selling glitter with Starmer or sparkle with Starmer t-shirts, uh, which I thought was quite clever. But before we get to him, uh, straight out of prison, or, and before we get uh, to Alex Diner, we are going to do the week unwrapped. So that's every week we go through some of the big news stories from around the world and around the country. Uh, obviously, Labour Party politics dominates this week, uh, but it's not just Labour Party that we're going to speak about. And joining us is a senior policy advisor in UK government and policy and events officer at the London Young Famians. That's Cecilia Jazz Trzemska. Have I pronounced that right, Cecilia? Very nearly, Ali. Yes, Trzemska. Thank you so much for joining us. Now, sh should we be open with the public and say that we actually grew up together around the same schools, right? Absolutely. Yeah, so just, uh, just want to correct the record in case anyone <laughs> asks me. Cecilia, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we're going to be talking about some of the big news uh, coming out of the world and uh, around conference. And we're going to start uh, with... One of the major policy announcements that have come out of Labour Party conference, and that's that women 
should be given more rights to financial support when their relationship ends in sweeping changes to cohabitating laws that Labour government would introduce uh, under Emily Thornbury. The Shadow Attorney General used her conference speech to lash out rules that currently mean they can end up on the street if they leave or are thrown out of their family home. She told delegates in Liverpool that the party would reform the law so women who do not own a share of the family property do not have to stay in unhappy or abusive relationships and even marry just to feel financially secure. So Emily Thornbury, uh, in our big speech at Party Conference, talked about sweeping changes to cohabitating law to give women more financial support. What's your what's your reaction to what Emily has said at conference? I completely agree with what Emily has stated. Ultimately, women are always at the forefront of the cascade effect and they're disproportionately affected by these kind of legal loopholes. So Emily, with all of her experience managing to close that is brilliant. We've got 3.6 million cohabiting couples in the UK. That's the fastest growing family type. And in 2022, they made up 80% of all families, accounting for three quarters of the total growth in the number of families in the UK in the last 10 years. But of course, there aren't very many legal rights when that relationship ends through separation or if a, or if a partner dies, for example. So lots get caught out by that common law marriage myth, believing that they have those rights when they don't. So this is a really good way mm -hmm of honing in and zeroing in on those loopholes and making sure that women are actually protected. And I think for those listening, obviously you've quite highlighted eloquently there that the fear is that under current laws, there are still legal loopholes and gaps in the law for women where they may end up having to stay in unhappy and abusive relationships and even sometimes marry just for the financial security of knowing they won't end up on the streets uh, if they leave their partner or their partner dies, um, that they won't end up in financial ruin uh, and this is part of, of of a program that emily thornbury um uh spoke about at conference to to make changes to this cohabitating law but it wasn't just emily i think lisa nandy also spoke about putting women at women and girls at the heart uh, of human rights uh laws and and the work that she would be doing in international development there seemed to be a little bit of a theme there are, are, are you excited at the prospect of a labor government what might they might do uh, for women in Britain and across the world more generally as well? Certainly. So some of the work that I do within the Fabian Society and another think tank that I have an organisation I'm a part of is called European Movement, which links to this, is it essentially improves relations between the EU and the UK. Now, ultimately at the moment, our international reputation has been decimated. We don't have a seat at the table. We don't have structured courts or bilateral relations. And now women need to be at the forefront of repairing that, of leading that charge, of spearheading initiatives. And during Labour Conference this week, I was lucky enough to talk to lots of different MPs, former MEPs, people like Pedro Serrano, who's the ambassador of the EU delegation to the UK, about how we can lead that charge. And as we referenced earlier, with when you have that intersection of different types of crises and issues, women will be hit hardest. So like in the climate crisis, I believe it's really important that women are at the forefront mm. of leading that repair, that rebuilding, and the way, and essentially shaping the way forward, forwards for our politics and our international approach. So, and I think... Women have those ideas 
they are ready to take that charge. They're ready to kind of step into their power. They just need to, we just need to have a Labour government mm. and to be given that voice. I just want to ask a quick follow-up on that, just your own personal opinion. One of the things that Conservatives continuously do, particularly on social media, but we've heard it from the dispatch box as well, is this scorecard, right, of the fact that Conservatives have had women prime ministers and women leaders, and Labour has still yet to have a permanent woman as a leader of the Labour Party and a prime minister. Um, what would you say to Labour colleagues about the importance of you know, having women in leadership positions as not just as a response to the Conservatives, but as the right thing to do? I cannot overstate how important it is to have equal representation. And I'm an ambassador for a uh, initiative called 5050 Parliament led by Francis Scott, which aims to achieve that representation. Ultimately, as we were talking about this in uh, our Labour Women's Network rally, um, we had a lot of situations and stories from people in the audience where they had to be, they need to be asked to, to stand. A lot of the time, they don't feel they're qualified, they're conditioned to feel that imposter syndrome, which ultimately has so many women applying for positions that they are way overqualified for. And even Abena said, you know, when she was running to be an MP, people said to her, well, you shouldn't run because there's been no black MPs in the, in this constituency. It's not a good idea. And so she said, well, if there's no one who has been a, a black MP, then it's going to need to be me because women and young girls need to look at the top of government and see people who look and think like them. Yeah, and, and I, I, I think that part of that was, I mean, look, for the longest time, the part, part of that was the the all women's shortlist which did a huge amount in making sure that we that we got more women into parliament um that has now we can't go ahead of that because of the legal challenges um but i think it's really really important for the labor party to maintain its commitment um to uh 50 50 parliament uh particularly uh, i know that has been achieved on the labor side but not on the um not on the conservative side and i you know i've spoken at length on this show about how broken the selection processes are in the party uh, and how you know they constantly punish working class people, women, people of color as well. So I'm glad you've uh, you've raised the issue of 50-50 parliaments. Um, I want, before I get to the next point, you, you mentioned that you're from the London Fa uh, Young Fabians and the Fabian Society. Our listeners might not know what that is. Do you want to give them a, a very brief, you know, top line on what that is? Absolutely. So the Fabian Society is Britain's oldest think tank. Uh, we have several branches. I'm on the National Executive Committee of the Young Fabians, which is under 31. Uh, we've also got Scottish branch, uh, Fabian Women's Network, which is brilliant. And it's essentially a Labour-affiliated think tank that seeks to shape policy. Amazing. Uh, and, and, and to be a young Fabian, Labour. you have to be under 31? Yes. Hey, I qualify. <laughs> I, I don't qualify as young Labour anymore, so I'm going to join London Young Fabians just to feel young. All right, last uh, story we're going to cover, Cecilia, with you is on the the issue of building the next generation of towns. So Keir Starmer, in his big policy announcement in his speech, has promised to build the next generation of new towns along with 1.5 million homes as part of a decade of renewal under Labour. The Labour leader said he would bulldoze through the planning system in England if his party wins power. Without action, he said, home ownership would become a luxury for the few. 
As Sakir readied himself for his conference speech, he was covered in glitter by a demonstrator who we're going to talk to later, calling for electoral reform. But he received his biggest applause as he claimed he had moved the Labour Party from a party of protest to a government in waiting. Throughout the speech, the Labour leader set himself out as a reformer promising to deliver economic growth and security. And particularly, I think his biggest uh, announcement was on 1.5 million homes uh, being built uh, across uh, five years in the UK uh, as a part of a decade of renewal. Obviously, Cecilia, as a young person, a member of the London Young, uh, an exec member at the London Young Fabians, you will know young London housing, we're in the shit. This has to be massive good news. Yes, and it absolutely is. Ultimately, we are in a housing crisis. We've got a squeeze on renters. Tenants, as you said, are most likely to be young people. We've seen rents rise 5.1% in the year up to June. Uh, three, one in three tenant households are spending more than more than half their income in rent. And we've got a homelessness crisis. And ultimately, yes, we need to build, build, build. I think this is brilliant news. The one thing that I question and I'm looking for more of is mention of where what we're doing about the green belt, because we should be stipulating that the new homes are being fitted with solar panels, heat pumps, high-grade insulation. Uh, and currently, there's not a lot of specifics mm -hmm. and not a lot of ultimately promises that tell us what is going to happen when it comes to this green yeah. belt, grey belt delineation. And I think that and... was one of the one of the biggest criticisms of his speech. And I think it was generally well received. But one of the biggest criticisms was the detail. Um, and, and there was, you know, there was overarching vision, um, which is usually what these big conference speeches are about. Uh, but there was a huge amount of, of detail. And I think the green belt was certainly a question that people had. But another question that people had was, well, this wasn't clear as to how much of this would be council housing, how much of this would be affordable housing. Um, you know, what is the government's relationship with big property developers? Is that something you want to see before a general election made really, really clear to people that this isn't going to be unaffordable housing, you know, 1.5 million unaffordable houses built by big property developers, but rather affordable housing for ordinary folk. Because those of us in London, I don't know if you are in London, well, you must be because you're London New York Fabians, but it's, we've had people on this show and think tanks on this show provide us with data that suggests the average down payment for a house in London can be as high as 115 thousand pounds as a down payment so how much of this do you want to make sure is affordable i think the majority of this is going to need to be is going to obviously it's costed but we're going to need more specifics like you said and this is something that the media were looking for is ultimately how is it going to work uh how, how are how many young people are going to be able to say that buying a house is actually not just a nebulous dream but a serious reality and uh, how long term will this be mm -hmm. so i think absolutely and what would you what would your call be something that we focus on and what would your call be as it pertains to council housing how important do you think that is it, incredibly um i think it's it's going to have to be at the forefront of how we look at uh, how these how this building is going to work and whether young people are going to be able to stay in London. I mean, for example, a lot of my friends have moved out recently because they simply can't afford it or people have moved back in, in with their parents during COVID and a lot aren't moving back out. So it's a real crisis. Okay, thank you so much. That was Cecilia Jess Trezemska.
uh, senior policy advisor in UK government and policy and events officer at the London Young Fabian. Cecilia, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we're going to stay on this issue of housing. Um, we, we know, you know, we've spoken about it on this show plenty of times. But what we want to talk about is Sakir Starmer and the Labour Party's plans that were announced at party conference. What that means for people, what you can expect, uh, where are the areas that we would want more detail from. Because 1.5 million homes being built over five years is a major announcement and it's probably the biggest announcement coming out of party conference particularly you know that doesn't include glitter um and so this is a really really key key area uh, of policy and that we wanted to discuss and joining us next we have the senior housing researcher at new economics foundation alex diner will be joining us after this fubar radio presents access all areas we have the absolute icon mm-hmm. legend janice dickinson I- do you still enjoy doing reality shows or do you now see it as more of like a part of your job that you like have to do? I do. I do really enjoy it. I, do, I don't enjoy the actuality of, of eating fish eyeballs. <laughs> well, yeah, there's that side to Amazon. Or vagina of cow. Yeah. But you do like the sort of social I, side, do you? Like just the the social know. side was fantastic. Just getting to know people mm. and uh, sleeping with people and eating with people when we didn't really have enough food. This week, we have Natalie Balmain, winner of Channel 4's Make Me a Prime Minister. We do have a serious problem with the standard of our public servants and the behaviour they display both in office and in ministerial office, no? Absolutely. 100. We're an embarrassment. Yeah. You no. know, we're we're a, a nation that once purported to be world leaders. But now, with the people we have in charge, we can't even lead ourselves. Well, we are leading the world in terms of idiots and, and clowns. <laughs> <in> office, <I laughs> the dating show. Do you Please do. Back in the day, when it used to be like fashionable, or uh, it was it was the thing to do, when you'd go on Facebook, yeah, and you'd be like, "Hello, I'm like in a relationship." What was the other one? It was um, it's complicated. Do you remember that one? Yeah, it's uh, in a relationship with, yeah, or it's, it's complicated. complicated. But then what you used to do it used to pop up on the feed, so you'd be sitting there, yeah, uh, and then in the feed it would be. Um, I don't know, Jess, whoever is now single, so you like that one, or do, poke them. Did you poke them? Then you give you them a little poke. Yeah. yeah. Give a little virtual poke. Yeah. Um, just to go, I see you're single now, babe. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It, oh, Facebook were great, weren't it? You're listening to Foobar Radio. Foobar Radio. Foobar Radio. Foobar Radio. Radio. Hello, it's Sally Maloney back on Foobar Radio. We've been talking about Labour Party Conference, Liverpool. Um, we've just been speaking to Cecilia from the London Yafamians talking about particularly the homing, the homes plan um, and the, the announcement made uh, by Sir Keir Starmer, Labour Party leader, leader of the opposition on what a Labour pub government would do and that is build 1.5 million homes. And we're going to be speaking to Alex Diner, senior housing researcher at New Economics Foundations in a minute. But before we get into that, let us hear from the man himself, Sir Keir Starmer on housing. So it's time to get Britain building again. It's time to build one and a half million new homes across the country. Opportunities for first-time buyers in every community. New development corporations with the power to remove the blockages. New infrastructure to support families and communities to grow. Roads, tunnels, power stations built quicker and cheaper. And a new effort to rewire Britain. The national grid moving faster, a lot faster laying the cables our future prosperity needs. 
It's a future with more beautiful cities, more prosperous towns, new parks, green spaces, new public services, all aligned with our plan. And conference, sometimes the old Labour ideas are right for new times. So where there are good jobs, where there is good infrastructure, where there's good land for affordable homes, we'll get shovels in the ground, cranes in the sky, and build the next generation of Labour new towns. There you hear Sakir Starmer talking about his flagship policy announced announcing 1.5 million homes as part of a decade of renewal under Labour. Um, did he say cranes in the sky? Can you put cranes in the sky? Um, I'm going to move right past that. Uh, I think I, I think you can, right? They look like they're in the sky. Their base is on the ground, but we'll get into the sky. Um, this is the three-hour sleep, or the four-hour sleep, really coming through the show. Uh, we're going to get back on, back on topic, um, and we're going to talk about this 1.5 million homes with Alex Diner, senior housing researcher at the New Economics Foundation. Uh, Alex, can you hear me okay? Oh, he's just joining us now. Um, so as Alex joins, I'll just remind everyone of what the policy is. The Labour leader said he would bulldoze through the planning system in England if his party wins power uh, and promises to build the next generation uh, of new towns with 1.5 million homes. And we are now joined by Alex Diner, senior housing researcher at the New Economics Foundation. Alex, thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure. What is your initial reaction to Sir Keir Starmer's what seems to be the main... Um, breakthrough announcement at his conference speech, which is a new generation of towns uh, under Labour, a decade of renewal, 1.5 million new homes being built. Yeah, well, look, first of all, it's really refreshing that um, that the party are talking about it in such bold terms and that they're making housing a central plank of what they hope will be their programme for government. And that's because the scale of the challenge is absolutely huge. Um, you probably don't need me to say this to many, as many of your listeners will experience it on a daily, daily basis. But we've got millions of people trapped in poor quality private rented sector accommodation, nowhere near enough adequate, um, high quality, affordable, genuinely affordable social rent homes um, to let. And too many people who want to get on the housing ladder to own their own home, but just not unable to save enough money because of the, the cost of living crisis and their rents are so high they can't save enough. So the party's right to absolutely um, grasp the metal on this. It's also expensive, really expensive for taxpayers, the system we have at the moment. It costs around six point, homelessness costs around 6.5 billion pounds a year. So it's good that the party are, are taking this seriously. And I have to say in stark contrast to, to what we didn't hear from the Conservative Party conference, last week but it's also fair to say that the proof will be in the pudding um, we'll have to see if and when there is a Labour government whether it can kind of uh, match the scale of the ambition that it set out this week can you put into context for folks I mean uh, I think our listeners will know the will know and feel the scale of the housing crisis across the UK and obviously the lack of mention of the housing crisis from Conservative Party conference will have will have itself spoken a lot uh, but if you could put into into kind of context and focus 1.5 million homes, because folks might not, it sounds like a big number, uh, put into context for people who might not know the housing market, how ambitious is that? How far does that go into meeting the crisis we face? Well, it is very ambitious. So we haven't got anywhere close to building those number of homes um, for decades and decades and decades. Not since the post-war period have we built that volume of homes 
300,000 is incidentally what the government's um, house building target was before they dropped dropped it uh, earlier this year. That's 300,000 so a year. So Starmer has promised 1.5 million so over a five-year five parliament. Yeah, That's right. So over a five-year term, it's one and a half billion. I think the key challenge um, for for Labour, I mean, there are many key challenges because it's a huge, ambitious programme, as I was saying, but one of, if not the most key challenge amongst all of this, we to make sure that as much of that, uh, much those homes are genuinely affordable and for social rent as possible because that's really the only way that we get to the heart of fixing the housing crisis because we've got rising numbers of homelessness at the moment there's over a hundred thousand families in temporary accommodation 65,000 of those have children within them they're living in terrible temporary accommodation so we really have to um uh, any any future Labour government will of, of those 300,000 a significant number will have to be social for social rent shelter crisis other big housing organizations talk about ninety thousand homes for social rent and i think that has to be the test against mm -hmm. which this is judged uh what's interesting is i was at conference uh and the, we we have stalls in conference so a place where delegates can can meet a bunch of different organizations and shelter were there uh, and they had what was by far the most powerful stall because they showed um, the conditions in which a lot of people in the country live under um, the sort of degraded, uninhabitable housing that people are forced to live under. Uh, and I'm really glad you hit the point of affordability because that was going to be my next question to you. 1.5 million is all well and good, but if it's if it's unaffordable for people to get into, then then it doesn't really meet the crisis. How do we make sure that, that it's affordable? I don't think the detail is out yet on how much of it will be affordable housing, how much of it will be council housing. Um, but but what is what would be some of the calls from from you uh, and the New Economics Foundation about how how we make sure that these houses are affordable? Yeah, well, as I said, I think that's the key question. And there is a central pot of money from the government called the Affordable Homes Programme, which provides the capital grant for councils and housing associations to bid into to provide and build that new social and affordable housing. Now, lamentably, and it really is uh, morally indefensible that in the middle of a housing crisis, the government wasn't able to spend that money, uh, the allocated money from last year. There was about two billion pounds in underspend. Why? Um, Why was the, that? In the mid Sorry. Why was that? Well, I think the reason for that is because at the moment, developers don't want to develop. Um, lots of them are land banking. They're trying to maximise their profit margins because we're in a period of house price stagnation. So it's very, very difficult to get the cogs turning at the moment. And I think that's one of the reasons why. So, um, so I'm sorry. So developers are land banking, which basically means they're buying up the land but not building on them. Correct. Yeah. And because the market is stagnating, and there's not there's not a real will to build that there's an underspend in the allocated money of building houses and therefore houses aren't being built. Why doesn't the government just do it itself? Why does it do it in-house? Well, what the government could do, um, and I was pleased to, to see Labour speaking in these terms, and it's something we've been talking about, the new, uh, something we've been talking about at the New Economics Foundation, is to give that cash to councils to buy up homes. So if, if developers don't want to build, let the councils use that money get that money out the door, out of Whitehall, mm -hmm. into town halls across the country, let them buy up homes from those landlords. And we know some landlords at the moment do want to sell their properties for yeah. a, a series of reasons. So I, I, let, that's, let, that's really good. I, I'm, I'm, I'm all on board for that. But can the government itself not build itself? Can't it take the, the, the process in-house and just build itself? Am I being a ma massive communist? Or uh, like? <laughs> well, no, uh, I mean, 
you would have to so you'd have to have a landlord at the end of it so you know it, it's much best administered it's much better administered at a local level yeah where those local authorities and housing associations know their communities know the type of homes that we need on those areas mm. the key is that the government needs to get that money out the door yeah and it's failed to do that and i guess and buying is, is quicker right you've got an existing property and you can get that money out the exactly door. Exactly. Yeah. And we've got the problem at the moment is we've got, as I said earlier, rising numbers of homelessness, more and more families turning up mm. at their local authorities door saying. And what was that underspend? Uh, it's one point nine billion. One point. Um, that's a scandal. One point nine billion underspent while people are yeah. sleeping on so the, the street. There, there was press coverage around this um, earlier in the year. It's around six hundred million of which is from the affordable homes program and then a number of other pots of money uh, related to infrastructure that to accompany new homes. Mm -hmm. But the point is, as, as, as I was saying, that this money really, as you, as you said, it is a scandal, but it's just sat yeah. there and being returned back to the Treasury. And so the challenge for, for the government and any new Labour administration is to try and find ways to get that money out the door um, mm. and to try and, you know, relax the, the kind of very strict criteria that, that there are attached to these grants, yeah. get that money out the door, build it on as much social and affordable housing as possible. And I was really... Uh, glad to hear the shadow housing minister, uh, the multiple fringes that I heard him at, uh, at Labour conference speaking those terms. And to do that, to make as much of that as social rent uh, as possible. And the key, the key reason for that is because, as I said, you've got lots and lots of an increasing number of people turning up at their council saying, my landlords kick me out. I can't afford the rents in my area anymore. You have a statutory duty to house me. And councils are under increasing pressure to place those families in temporary accommodation, yeah, I, which is also dwindling in number. I, I mean, so, look, I, 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 I'm ashamed to say I missed that that press rounds of that 1.9 billion underspend, and I, I think it sounds to me like it's a big scandal that people are showing up to that to the local councils and saying, "I don't have a place to live. I'm homeless. You have a statutory duty to house me, and there's a 1.9 billion pounds sat somewhere that could be housing all these people." Uh, and I'm really glad that you you've we've brought that up today. Uh, one of the things I do want to ask you about um, that our listeners may not have completely understood in 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 Keir's speech, and is a little bit inside government, local government, particularly talk, is the planning systems in the UK. So Keir, in his speech, said he's going to bulldoze through the planning systems in England, and we've had all thing all sorts of things about green belt uh, and and brown sites. Can you talk a little bit about what? any sort of reform to a planning system is and what it could mean for house building. Yeah, absolutely. So um, what what Keir Starmer and the Labour Party were speaking about at their conference was not about ripping up the planning system and starting again. And um, what they're talking about is making the current planning system that we have at the moment much more efficient, um, because at the moment it can sometimes take years and years and years for um, for a planning application to go through the, the really arduous process, which is often subject to numerous appeals and challenges from local residents and some of yeah. that is is kind of uh, legitimate and others sometimes it isn't frankly yeah. and it can just be a way to hold up a development from taking and place. i just i just want to sorry I'm, I'm keep interrupting you i do apologize but i just want to okay. be really clear for listeners who might not understand so in order to build homes to build houses whether that's a block or a single flat you need planning permission from your local authority and right. a lot of the blocks right now in building is that whether it's legitimate concerns from local from locals residents around the area you need to get that planning permission uh from your local authority and what labor are saying is they want to reform bulldoze or do whatever to make it easier to get that planning permission to build 
That's right. It's about, I, I think Labour is speaking about it in terms of making the current system more efficient and effective by empowering local authorities to have greater numbers of staff working on this. It's basic bread and butter things like right. that, because over the capacity, last 30 years, there's it's capacity. That's absolutely right. And in a number of areas of local government, we've, we've seen real reductions in staff um, and, and planning is, is, is one of the foremost of those. So it's about things like that. But it's also about... Um, something your your uh, viewers may not be aware of is is the section 106 uh kind of uh, procedures and i won't go into too much detail about it but what it is effectively a way of it's it's, it's a means by which you get um funding for infrastructure and affordable housing from a developer when they build um when they build a, a development site and at the moment the system allows developers to wiggle out of that far too easily they use things called viability assessments to not pay their fair share. And what that often means is that any housing, any new housing development often lacks that key infrastructure and crucially the right numbers of, of affordable housing because developers are too, too easily wiggle out of it. Um, and the proof will be in the pudding as to, to whether Labour are able to mm -hmm. achieve this, but they at least understand that that's a problem. And I've talked about reforming a statutory yeah. Uh, the, the statutory guidance around this to kind of beef up local authorities' ability to push back on developers. Mm -hmm. So all of that's really, really welcome. Um, Can you talk a little bit about Greenbelt as well, what that means and, and what Labour have said? Yeah, so Greenbelt was, is the uh, kind of areas of land around many of our big cities, and it was designated as Greenbelt land after the, the Second World War, and it was designed to stop uh, urban sprawl. Um, and what it has, and that I should say as well, that's important to distinguish that from areas of outstanding natural beauty or national parks and things like that, which are supposed to be areas in which the public have, you know, access to areas of, of, of uh, kind of uh, beautiful natural environment that isn't the same as the green belt, which is designed to stop that urban sprawl. And what Labour are saying, and what many campaigners have said for many, many years, is that that green belt may have served a useful purpose a number of decades ago but right now it is holding back uh development yeah and it's stopping our cities our most economically uh viable and, and the places in which we generate the most amount of economic growth yeah. from expanding and creating and, um, the right number of homes and jobs in the right areas so obviously right now you can't build on green belt correct it's more difficult more to. difficult to right okay uh last question i want to ask is really about where these new generation of towns will be i mean 1.5 million homes 300,000 uh, a year in part as part of a as part of one parliament um the 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 concerns i think would be that they don't go in the places that they should uh, we often hear that the that the money often gets kind of sucked into the south of england um and 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 not elsewhere um i think the hope is that that the line that that Sakir Starmer used about a new generation of towns is itself an indication that that's not going to happen. Is that is that promising? Well, uh, it's it's unclear at the moment. I think uh, what what the party are speaking in terms of doing is around um, creating pots of money into which um, combined authorities and perhaps local authorities can bid for access for for that infrastructure spend and to set up what are called development corporations to really kickstart those new towns. Now, the criteria against which any future government decides to allocate resources to that obviously hasn't been decided yet. I think in my view, what I think would be the best way to proceed is to make sure that any new town does a number of things. It's, it's kind of environmentally sustainable. 
Um, it provides the right number and type of homes, by which I mean genuinely social homes and affordable home ownership options. Um, and it really has to make sure that it's servicing the economy and human and, and housing need. So at the moment, it's many of our bigger cities, actually, that have the greatest number of, of, of uh, housing need, where there's the most amount of homeless people, the most amount of people in overcrowded accommodation. And what you need is those new, new towns to service the economy that you want to build. And that can be about housing. It's about creating the right jobs in places. Um, there, I, I should say as well, I don't think that it's envisaged and I don't think it'd be tenable to imagine that you would build that all of these uh, 1.5 million homes would come up in, in new towns. Mm. There is still a huge amount of housing need elsewhere in the country in our existing settlements that, that you yeah. can just expand a little bit. You wouldn't and have that to build a new that town includes the cities like Leeds, Manchester, Birmingham, Leicester, yeah, London. Absolutely. Right. So, I, you know, it's very difficult to, yeah. to imagine what the kind of map of the United Kingdom may look like after once these new towns are built. Yeah. But I think people are speaking about it in terms of the, the kind of post-war new towns which emerge mostly around the outskirts of london but also other cities in the north of england mm -hmm. and i think that's a model which from which um we can learn a great deal because it it, it really did um provide fantastic sustainable communities and quality high quality homes many of which still uh, are in fantastic nick today yeah and so for me that's a really good model actually to, to kind of look back and say well how can we do that again yeah alex you're gonna hate me this is my last question you're gonna hate me for this all right but um but 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 humor me um you obviously it sounds like you were at conference um and you heard the speech uh in your position as senior housing researcher at uh, nef uh if you were to give sakir stam a grade let's say a to f um on his announcement uh around how optimistic you are not so much whether you believe he's going to deliver it but the actual announcement that's been made itself yeah. what, what kind of grade would you give him so I would say, uh, it's a very good question. Uh, I, I would say seven, uh, maybe seven and a half. Um, well, really I said promising. A to F and you've gone seven. So, uh, oh, well, sorry, I didn't hear that. I didn't that's, hear that. That's B, uh, uh, sort of a B minus, right? <laughs> yeah. Right, okay. Let's go with that. Uh, let's probably B. So actually let's seven out of 10 is probably a better, a better way to do it. So let's do seven <laughs> out of 10. Right. Let's go with a B because right. I think it, 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 it rises to the scale of the challenge. And it understands mm. the fundamental need to do this stuff and to build the right homes, the right type of homes in the right places and to do so sustainably. Mm. It addresses how you might set up an infrastructure and all the pieces of the puzzle that you might need to do that. The one thing which it doesn't necessarily do and didn't and, and the party didn't talk about um, was about the capital funding that, that would need to come along with that. So the upfront infrastructure spending and then further down the line, the amount of grant funding for to, to make sure that as much of that is social housing mm -hmm. as possible they didn't speak about that but save for that it was a it was a really kind of uh i think bold set of policies that really does set uh set a, a really positive framework and i to go back to the point i made um first of all it's just really refreshing to hear um any mainstream political party speaking those terms and really understand how significant this challenge is and to propose a set of ideas realistic ideas that maybe don't go far enough in terms of the capital funding for now um, but but set a, a good framework for how to deal with the problem. All right, uh, Alex Diner, that's senior housing researcher at the New Economics Foundation. Alex, we're definitely going to have you back on. I think in the last sort of 20 minutes that me and you have spoken, you've more eloquently and simply described the housing crisis and Labour's policy than I've heard in a long, long time. So I commend you for that. And I've really enjoyed having you on and hope you will join us 
uh, again Thank you very much. in the near future. That, that is Alex Diner, Senior Housing Researcher at the New Economics Foundation, talking about Labour's big policy plans to build 1.5 million homes, as announced by Sakir Starmer at Labour Party conference uh, as part of a decade of renewal under Labour. Now, of course, in his big speech, he announced 1.5 million new homes. He announced more police. He announced more colleges. Uh, but before he could do any of that, he was bombed with glitter. Uh, and I think in what is uh, a near exclusive, if not an exclusive, uh, the man who was arrested following uh, that stunt, that protest, um, is going to be joining us. Yaz Ashmawi, Starmer's Glitter Bomber and campaigner with People Demand Democracy, which I believe is a new organization, is going to be speaking to us exclusively or near exclusively right after this. Fubar Radio presents The Dating Show. So we have got the incredible Sunita. How does Sunita whittle down the people she wants to talk to to the people she doesn't? What's your criteria? Well, you've got to be an adult. Um, <laughs> okay. That's always a good start. Always a good start. But when I'm an adult, not just like 18, you've got to be like not young enough to be my child. Um, <laughs> you have to ideally be London-based, because I am. Yeah. Although I don't mind if you've got a country pad, that would be nice. So at the minute we're going with age and location are important. Age and location are good. Every Friday from 6pm. Fubar Radio. Welcome back. This is Ali Milani on Fubar Radio, Politics Uncensored. We've been talking about Labour Party conference policy. Uh, we've been talking uh, about politics. We've been talking about Sakir Starmer's big conference speech, all the things he's announced. Uh, but as I got on the train home <laughs> late on Tuesday uh, and I started scrolling my Twitter feed, all anybody saw uh, was the incident at the beginning of Sakir Starmer's speech uh, where a campaigner with People Demand Democracy, ran up on stage, covered him in glitter, and shouted, the people demand a people's house, if I'm not mistaken. And we have that campaigner um, with us today, Yaz Ashmawi, Starmer's glitter bomber and campaigner with People Demand Democracy. Yaz, thank you for, so much for joining us. Just tell me about the last 24 hours, or 48 hours. Uh, um... Well, thanks for having me on here. Yeah, I mean, it was obviously a, a quite an intense experience. I, uh, I'd love to talk about like why why I did it. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna do lots of that. I just want to get your own personal stuff. Don't worry, I've given plenty of time to on on the issue. First of all, your background's on point. If any, if the branding was off, we now know you're definitely the guy who did it. Um, I just wanted to know the personal experience. What happened? How did you get there? And what happened in the immediacy afterwards? I think a lot of people have heard you got arrested, but haven't heard what's happened since. Well, the thing is, I put my hand on his arm, didn't I? And I touched him. Yeah. And I think that he, you know, politicians, they get a lot of death threats and they have a need to feel safe. And I sort of compromised that in that moment by touching him. So anyway, I was, I was dragged off. I got onto the stage because everyone was applauding. And so I hopped onto some chairs and hopped onto the stage. Um, I was kept in a cell for about 22 hours. I know he was, um, he was concerned. He was going to write a letter to the police about assault. So I've, uh, I guess I've, sort of owned up to that in a way I kind of do you regret that because what I was going to ask you about that at the end of the interview but I guess we'll do it now um safety of 
politicians is a big thing. I stood for parliament. I got more death threats than I think anyone else did in that in that series. So jumping up with his wife there, his children probably watching and touching him will have been a hugely scary moment, not just for him, but for every MP watching. Do you regret the action? Do you regret touching him? Where, where are you at now? The thought that like, even for a, for a moment, he felt like he was in danger is horrible to think about. And, you know, I think that it's absolutely fine to pull glitter on someone and, and to go onto the stage. I just think it's the physical contact that, mm -hmm. that crossed the line there. Um, but, you know, I hope that he can understand that the people of this country have a right to contribute to the decisions which will determine whether or not we live or die. And our whole electoral system is not fit to govern, can't mm -hmm. protect us. You know, I'm, yeah. I'm a scientist. I studied physics while, while I was at university and I'm terrified about this crisis in our climate and in nature. And we see society falling apart around us and we can't keep reinforcing the systems that have given us here. We've got a, yeah. a, a crisis to fix and a broken political system that can't actually do the job. Yeah, so talk to us about this. So you're a campaigner with People Demand Democracy. I believe People Demand Democracy is a fairly new organization. Uh, talk to us a little bit about that uh, and what drove you to to doing the protest. I think when you, st I'll be honest, I was in I was in at conference and I heard you sat, I, I, at first I thought it was either, um, it was just stop oil or it must be something like that. But you, you shouted, people demand a people's house. So talk to us a little bit about what that means. People Demand Democracy is, yeah, it's a brand new campaign. It's designed to escalate towards the upcoming election. We've got uh, expertise from some of the most influential nonviolent direct action movements in the last decade, like you've mentioned. And we demand an upgraded form of democracy where ordinary people have a say on the way politicians behave. Yeah, we need to make them work for us and not for lobbyists and themselves. So a hundred years ago, the suffragettes knew they deserved a voice. They couldn't take no for an answer, could they? They interrupted hustings and and debates and news events and panel shows and speeches. And I imagine we'll see similar things over the course of this next year. Like wherever there's visibility, ordinary people will demand a platform to present an actual alternative to our broken system. We have a right to say on these decisions in public, the people, you know, we're facing it. The biggest drop in living standards since record began. Two thirds of people believe that politicians are just out for themselves they want a new electoral system only three percent of people think the house of lords should stay as it is and we you know we are, if i can talk about the science for a minute because we are facing an emergency right basic climate science indicates that even if we reach our paris target of two degrees we'll see we'll see stronger storms more extreme seasons coral reefs will be lost billions will struggle to find water and, and there was this paper that was just published a few weeks ago that was this big review that looked at the human impact of carbon emissions that found that mainly richer humans will be responsible for killing one billion mainly mm. poorer humans, right? There is an immediate threat to life. There's an urgent need for these far-reaching changes in all aspects of societies. And citizens' assemblies are the answer. They are the intervention that we are looking for everywhere in our politics. It's a mm. solution actually on the scale so, of the problem. So I guess what you, I think what I'm understanding is the problem can be an issue like climate change, but the route to fixing it is fixing our democracy. And the way do we fix our democracy is the Citizens Assembly. We've previously, I think we had James Robertson on the show previously, who has advocated very similar things. The talks around um, a, a democratic lottery system, a people's house. Yeah, um, that's what it is. Yeah. And is this a replacement of the House of Lords? It is, a, is it its own separate thing? 
Is it a replacement for the House of Commons? It, I don't think it's a replacement for the House of Commons. There's there's different forms it can take. The Sortition Foundation, who are the biggest experts in the country when it comes to deliberative democracy and citizens' assemblies, they've run the vast majority of them, are proposing it replaces the House of Lords. I think there's a strong case that we need to update our politics in that way. But but you know what's really important to understand about this vision for a House of Citizens is that fundamentally what it does is it realigns power in society. It empowers people to set the agenda and by deciding on topics for citizens assemblies on issues can keep politicians in check by holding these independent public inquiries and it basically gives this house a say on the laws that politicians enact and write and write in that and, and vote on in that house you know mm -hmm. it, it sort of dismantles us it frees us from the capture of of interest and, and repairs our relationships right with our communities and with nature it can it can in our economy in our public services in our climate and our politics only normal people brought together given the time the science the the guidance can actually make the right decisions for our country mm -hmm. people are desperate for something different and we need to update politics and, and let people decide and that's the hope really that we can bring a new message a new possibility to yeah. people's minds as, as the next i tell you what yes what i'm hearing from what you're saying and i have to be honest you know I, 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 it's in the context of the Just Stop Oil protests, the XR protests. Um, it, it, it feels like to me there is an element of a feeling of powerlessness mm. and a frustration with politics, not just from you, but from a lot of people around the country. Um, and again, forgive me if, I've, if I'm misunderstanding you, but it sounds like there are elements of what happened at the conference speech that you regret, but that need for politics to change uh, to to stop the tinkering around the edges and for fundamentally people's voices to be heard, yeah. that's the sort of fire that's burning. Yeah, absolutely right. And 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 we are tired of being ignored, right? We can't afford to be ignored when we're facing a catastrophe like, catastrophe like this. And mm -hmm. you know, take take something like as basic as proportional representation. This idea of making your votes fairly count that the number of representatives in parliament actually reflects the proportion of people that want that ideology being mm -hmm. represented it's a bare minimum for an electoral system yeah but an 80 percent of your of the labor membership voted for it but starmer has completely ignored the leadership doesn't even believe in the democracy of its own party so how can we trust them to listen to actual the actual public and that's and that's where a lot of uh, a lot of um the frustration is coming and i guess my my final question is what, what does what does the next few weeks or months look like for you do you think you're going to be charged on this um do you you know do you know Maybe. what the outcome might look like it does sound like you you regret certain elements of it right do you want to yeah i mean look non-violence non-violence is about intervention to prevent harm and mm. it's about accountability and if mr Sama felt that he was threatened and i know that he you know he was going to write that that, that statement. And listen, I'm sure he did. Look, I, I saw right. the look on his face. Right. I'm sure I would have had the same look on my face. The amount of death threats that are received are, are, are critical. And I think the touching of the hand and the physical element is what yeah. would have been most alarming. Yeah. yeah, and I take responsibility for that. I, you know, I want to take full responsibility for my actions. Do you want to apologize to him on that element? Yeah, absolutely. I'm sorry, sorry for doing that. Um, mm -hmm. I, I just think, you know, that for, for those of you who are watching this, who feel that there is this need for something different, you can participate along with us, right? Join this open call. We have a welcome call on, on this Friday, sorry, mm -hmm. a week on Friday, the 20th of October. Um, PeopleDemandDemocracy.com, you can sign up. And this can be the start of something, yeah. you know? 
there, there, there can be a different way and we can yeah. all, you know, eat, and listen, I, 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 I hear you. Not involve people yeah, being I, touched, you know and I, I hear your regret, but I also, I also hear <laughs> this frustration at the political system and not just from you, from a lot of young people specifically, they're just fucked off, right? That the system, that there, it feels like, what was that film? Don't look up. It feels like a meteor is headed towards the earth. And a lot, a lot of people are shouting for us to do something and the system just won't let us. And it feels like that is what's driving a lot of the actions. And it's not an accident that, that all these different interventions, protests, campaigns, direct actions are happening at the same time. There's a feeling of powerlessness in our politics that I think we have to address. Yeah, absolutely. All right, well... Yeah, I'll, I'll let you continue, but thanks for having me on. Thank you so much. That was Yaz uh, Ashmawi, Starmer's Glitter Bomber and campaigner with People Demand Democracy, uh, the man who glitter bombed Sakir Starmer at the beginning uh, of his speech. And I, listen, when, when I knew we had Yaz on, I, 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 I had a bunch of thoughts about, you know, whether this, whether, what the right thing to do is, what questions I should ask him, because I am, I was concerned for Keir's safety, um, and I was really alarmed about what happened. Uh, and obviously the physical contact was a huge mistake, I think. And I think Yaz has apologized for it on this show and regrets it. You know, my thoughts were kids, kids were watching, his wife was in the front row, all the politicians in the room who would have felt their safety and would have been, you know, I can't imagine the mental anxiety of, of, of having had two MPs be murdered. You know, it's, 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 it's not a minor thing. And uh, and I don't want it minimized, and I, and I I I don't think it's something that should be ignored. And equally, what I don't want to do is dismiss this this feeling from young people, not Yaz, but young people in general, that there's a powerlessness in their politics, that party conference can come and go, and leader of the opposition and prime minister can get on stage and get off stage and say what they want. And the voices of these people are ignored. Uh, and I share their concerns around the climate crisis. I share their concerns around housing. It affects me. It affects my kids. It affects my future. And what I don't want to do is dismiss that. Uh, in a healthy democracy, it's important that people be allowed to voice their concerns within reason, within the law, within safety guidance, obviously, of our political leaders and everybody. But it's important that in a healthy democracy we do that. I, uh, you know, my family came here at the age of five from a democracy that isn't healthy and it's not a democracy, right? Where opposition voices and dissenting voices are put in prison. And one of the things I'm proud of of my country, Britain, is that we allow opposition voices to be heard, that direct action and protest and campaigning within reason is and within safety is allowed and it gives people like Yaz the opportunity to campaign, to have direct actions. He's made a mistake. He's apologized for it, but also highlighted the concerns he's raising around democracy, around a people's house, around climate change. And I'm really, really glad that he came on. Um, I hope that people take the right lessons from it. I hope he and others reflect on the type of actions that they take. And I think, listen... There's been a lot of conversations around XR, Extension Rebellion, and Just Stop Oil, and now people demand democracy around what is and isn't the right action. I've disagreed with some and agreed with others. Uh, in large part, I think 
you know, overall, I think, not with Yaz, but with, with some of the climate protests, we have an existential crisis. The, the future of humanity is on the line here. Uh, whether we the, the earth will be habitable and we need to take any and all available action to deal with this crisis it's, it's one of my one of my roommates at university used to say if you're concerned about the cost of climate change try counting your money while holding your breath and i think that's a really good example right if 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 large parts of our continent is going to be underwater if if land fires and 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 climate change is going to see the movement of people's refugee crises deaths then the action we have to take is equally as radical and proportionate and so i, I wanted to, to, to clarify the reason we had yaz on um why it was so important that he address some of the criticisms coming out but also the reason as to why he got on stage and the feeling of, of powerlessness. And so I'm glad he's done that. And that brings us near the end of our show. It's, it, you know, the last couple of weeks have, have, I think have been really dizzying for politicians, political activists, journalists. But what we have got is, a, is, is, is perhaps a clearer picture of what the next general election is going to look like. So Keir Starmer and his team at Party Conference talked about renewal, rebuilding, uh, Rishi Sunak uh, at the Conservative Party conference uh, tried to create his wedge issues uh, with the Labour Party. And I think as of the end of Labour Party conference, we're now on the road to a general election. Uh, and perhaps the most general, the most important general election in my lifetime, where the very existence of the NHS may be on the ballot. The planet will be on the ballot. Housing will be on the planet, on the ballot. The planet will be on on the ballot, like I said, and the economy and jobs and equality uh, and the future of of young people all across the country will be on the ballot. Uh, and I hope that some of the voices we bring to you will better inform you to make the decision when you walk into that ballot box and mark your X. I want to say a big thank you to our guests today, Cecilia Jastrzemska, who I've not seen in years. Um, we we used to go to neighbouring schools and our schools used to play football against each other. We lost. Shame. Pain still continues. Uh, I want to th big thanks to Cecilia for joining us, Senior Policy Advisor in the UK Government and Policy and Events Officer at the London Young Fabians. I want to big, big, give a big thanks. Guys, the three hours is catching up on me. I want to give a big thanks to Alex Diner, Senior Housing Researcher at the New Economics Foundation and to Yaz Ashmawi, Starmer's Glitter Bomber and Campaigner for joining us from People Demand Democracy. Now you can catch up with all of our previous shows on Instagram at Politics Fubar and Twitter or X at Politics Fubar. I'm on TikTok at Ali Milani UK. Uh, you can listen to all of our previous shows. Uh, we had John McDonnell on last week uh, in a really interesting long form uh, interview uh, talking to us about his background, how he came into politics um, and the Jeremy Corbyn years and what he's done since. You can go listen to that on FubarRadio.com. Uh, all of our episodes are on all good podcasting platforms. So you can go on, on, on Apple, Android. Uh, I'm sure other platforms exist, Google or, or some other stuff. What was that? Spotify. Oh, you can listen to us on Spotify. There you go. So it goes Jay-Z and then Ali Malani. 
uh, on, on your Spotify list so you can listen to all of our previous episodes. Like I said, go and like, comment and subscribe uh, to all of our platforms. I have been Ali Milani. I will see you all next week. Thank you for joining me. Salams. <laughs>